BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know Amazon provides ways of working that fit your lifestyle? They know you value your time outside of work, juggling family, school, friends, or other activities. That's why they offer a variety of shifts that work for you. There are full-time, part-time, and even temporary opportunities that can work with your schedule with great starting pay and sign-on bonuses. If you want a career that fits and adapts to your lifestyle, head to Amazon.com apply. Amazon is a proud equal opportunity employer. Hey, what's up? It's your man Carlos Miller of the 85 South Show. Do me a favor. Make sure you check out The Black Market, hosted by me, only on the 85 South Show feed. Subscribe to the 85 South Show to hear and tune in to The Black Market. Hear amazing interviews with entrepreneurs, creatives, and thought leaders, people who are doing amazing things in the black community. Listen to The Black Market on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Black Effect Presents features honest conversations and exclusive interviews. A space for artists, everyday people, and listeners to amplify, elevate, and empower black voices with great conversations. Make sure to listen to the Black Effect Presents podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. I tell people every week as we start this show, it's time to stop reading other people's success stories and actually start writing your own. A lot of people are held back. 
I always tell people you're here by gifts. You're here by passions. I tell people to lead with their gifts and don't let their age, especially their age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dream. My interviews I bring on Money Making Conversations, you might see uh, with celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and what I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is uh, Craig Melvin. He's the co-host of the Today Show and the author of the book Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. You may know Craig. He's an award-winning news anchor, as I said earlier, on the Today Show. You also have seen him on MSNBC Live and a host of Dateline. He's on the show discussed his book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. It's the story of all the father figures in Craig's life, and that includes inspiring men from his program or his series called Dad's Got This series on NBC, NBC News Today. These experiences and encounters have shaped Craig's understanding of his own role as a dad, and I'm sure I can be related. We'll have a nice conversation since Father's Day has recently passed. He has two young children. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, my man, Craig Melvin. How you doing, Craig? Well, Sean, I'm well. I'm well. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. Uh, I always enjoy your conversation, so I'd like to be a part of one. Thank you, my man. Uh, a Southern boy, South Carolina. Okay. There you go. You know, uh, I, I, you know, when I, when I see people on TV and you're so articulate, you there are no y'alls, there are no accents. How does a man come straight out of Columbia? And I know Columbia because Steve Harvey and I used to go down a lot performing at the town center, selling that place out all the time. So I'm very familiar with South Carolina, Charleston, that whole <laughs> low country. There's no low country in your Tone, what's going on here? How you how you break that low country accent, low country accent? Oh, it's funny because I didn't, I never, I never had it. My mom, uh, you'll appreciate this. Uh, growing up in Houston, mm-hmm. uh, the way that you grew up, my mom grew up in the projects, mm-hmm. and you know, first in the family to go to college, and first in the family to get a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. So when we came along, she wanted to expose us. To, to things and places that she had not been exposed to. Right. And, and consequently, I think was, I was probably 14 or 15, and she had us uh, take part in these oratorical contests. Right. Um, and and that was was kind of how it started. So I, 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 took, I took some public speaking classes and then these oratorical contests. And then the next thing you knew, I had what they, what they like to call in the business a uh, a nondescript dialect where you, you can't really tell uh, based on listening to me uh, where I'm from. So it, yeah. it's a blessing now. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, it was always he's he's talking white. He Absolutely, talks, he talks like a he talks like a white boy. Uh, yeah. um, so it's you know it's. It, it was a curse. Now it's a blessing. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I knew in my middle school, yeah, I remember my teacher used to always ask me to read, used to always ask me to read. And, you know, people talk about bullying. And, you know, when you people talk about, they call you snowflake, that was a oh, form yeah. of bullying. And then so it's, it's popularized now because people are willing to talk about it. But we all grew up in some form of physical or mental abuse from high school kids or people in the neighborhood. And my, I remember this, this, this girl, she made such a big deal that I was always asked to read that it, it almost, I have to say, traumatized me because I, I, I went exactly the opposite. I wanted to talk. I wanted to say ain't. I wanted to have, I wanted to slur my words. I wanted to fit in. And yeah. so with you, I, I bring that story up because you talk about it because you was hit with it. You was hit, you know, talking white, you didn't want to act white, you you calling you snowflake. What kept you focused? What kept you from from veering off like I veered off? I veered off and I said, hey, man, I want to fit in and not be me. You know, I think it was, um, and I write about in the book, my mother, my mother really was shot. I mean, she, um, she, she kept us on the straight and narrow at the time. 
uh, we, we resented the strictness. I mean, my mom, she knew all of our friends. Right. She knew all of the parents. Uh, we weren't allowed to stay out past, you know, during the week, maybe nine o'clock, maybe mm-hmm. on the weekends when kids were going to parties and having fun. I was doing oratorical contests and church <laughs> activities. And uh, I went to, in high school, I think I probably went to maybe three high school football games on Friday night. I just, I didn't, I grew up on a very tight leash. Right. Um, and, and part of it was my mother overcompensating for, for my father not being the kind of dad that he should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of it was mom knew, she knew back then, I think, kind of what it took. She was a school teacher. Then she went into administration. She knew what it took um, to, to shape and mold uh, young black boys, especially. Right. And, and that was it. Had it not been for her, had I grown up in, in another house, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Well, you know, in writing your book, you know, the book we're talking about, talking, interviewing Craig Melvin, his book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. Is it because of the fact that your father wasn't there, that she may be overcompensated and wanted to make sure you didn't, you had a better life or you pursued the options, even though I knew she went to college and I think yeah. at the age of 22 is when she became pregnant with you. Mm-hmm. But talk about that in the middle is because as we talk about trying to shape you because of the fact that you've been shaped by a lot of people, especially the stories. We're going to talk about the, the prison incident when you was out of Camp Grace, how that really kind of like started you in this direction of humanizing all men, especially men who are incarcerated. Talk about your mom and her role versus your dad role, because you mentioned it just a little bit. But yeah. that centers around us getting to the story and your father changing his life at the age of 67. So mom, yeah, mom, mom, mom had to play the role of mom and dad uh, for uh, the better part of my childhood. Right. Um, it was, it was, it was a role that she was, you know, she was fortunately well prepared for it because uh, she ended up, she had to take care of her three younger siblings um, when she was in college, and her father uh, skipped out of the family, ended up um, essentially dying on the streets in, in squalor. Um, but no, a mom. Because my father was not physically uh, present as often as I would have liked and my younger brother would have liked and my older brother as well, mom stepped in to, to fill the gap. She filled the, she filled the void. And not just, not just being present in the sense of, uh, Sean, uh, uh, Little League games or soccer games or, or concerts, not just physically present, but, but, but emotionally present, right. uh, spiritually present. Right. I mean, the, the relationship that I have uh, with God is because of, of my mother's relationship mm-hmm. uh, with, with God. So it, it was um, it was divine intervention. You know, had I had any other mother, it, things would not have, have gone um, the, the way that they did. But, you know, it's it's also and I write about it in the book, as you know, and mm-hmm. I, I do appreciate the fact that you read the book. You'd be surprised how often we talk to people about books <laughs> and they haven't read word one. Um, but I, I, I can tell you read the whole thing. And I write about, in the book, my father, I asked him during the course of, of my, my interviews with him for, for the book, I said, Pops, what was the most money you ever wasted mm-hmm. without missing a beat? He said it was about $1,500 back in 1986. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that was a lot of money back then. What'd you spend that money on? Right. He said, that's how much, that's how much it cost to put my daddy in the ground. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in that moment, I realized um, that while I had been frustrated by the lack of relationship I had with my dad, it was exponentially better than the relationship he had with his own father. Right. He didn't even know who his dad was 
until he was almost a teenager. So it, it was it was wholly unrealistic of me to expect him to be the kind of dad that I had, had come to, to, to idolize. He, he couldn't be it because he hadn't seen it. And you can't be something. It, or scratch that. It's really hard to be something. Yes. If, 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 you, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't been exposed to it. So that's what my dad was up against. Well, you know, when I, when I read the book, you know, um, you know, I heard Shotgun House. Okay, I, I grew up in. I was born in a shotgun house, two bedroom shotgun house. A lot of people, if you listen to shotgun house, open the front door, shoot the gun out, the shotgun out the through the, go out the front back door, don't hit anything. That's a shotgun house. Okay, yo, uh, you you reference pig feet? Grew up with pig feet, my man. Hey, I oh, wouldn't man. touch them now, Greg. I wouldn't touch them. <laughs> oh, but oh. but pig feet were, were, were part of my lifestyle, and so that's the southern. I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm from the south. It was it was a lifestyle that was normal to me, but it was also a community community lifestyle of people taking care of each other. And that was really important. Not only your dad, even though there were some missteps, there were still people there to take care of him, you know, to make sure he was focused, to shout at him as he became an adult. There were people in the community. That's really important in this book that no matter what, there's some form of family tied to your story and the people in your life. Talk about that. You know, it's a, it's it's funny because long before uh, people started talking about it taking a village mm-hmm. uh, to, to to rear a child, I, I had a village. We you know it wasn't called that back back in the eighties in South Carolina back in the eighties and nineties when I grew up. But I, I I had a village, and 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 yes, there were uh, a number of men um, who played the role of dad along the way. My uncle James, my uncle Jake, my uncle Frank. Um, but th- there were also a lot of women that, that, that played the part as well. I, I was disciplined and I think that's the politically correct term. <laughs> I was, I was disciplined by more women growing up than, than men, whether it was my mom or, or one of my aunts or my grandma. I spent a lot of time with mm-hmm. my two grandmothers growing up mm-hmm. and, and they really, uh, shaped me in myriad ways that I didn't fully appreciate until I was older. Right. Uh, but, and then after that, I had coaches along the way. I always, God always blessed me with, with, with people along the road right. uh, that, that gave me a little part of, of something that I was, I was able to take and build on. Right. It's difficult for young black men, especially, it's, it's difficult to, to learn how to carry yourself in this world. Um, with without examples of it. And and I, I had lots of examples, thankfully, along the way. But the reality is, as you know, Sean, a lot of kids don't have that. Right. A lot of kids don't, they just, you know, through no fault of their own, mind you. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 don't have a, a mother or a father or an uncle or an aunt mm-hmm. to take their hand uh on this journey of life. And so they end up finding role models uh that, that should not be held up. But that should right. not be on a pedestal, and right. they begin to to emulate them. You know, the the thing I really like about your book is that sometimes, because uh, I, 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 my father was a truck driver, you know, so you know when he wasn't driving trucks, you know, he was uh, he was he wasn't really connected to me. I can I can tell you, 
He was my father. I can tell you that. My mom was there for me. My mom pushed me. My mom always felt I could be somebody special in life. Uh, when your father showed up for your ball game, that, that memory, you don't know if you got a hit or home run or you or got, or got struck out every time you went up the bat, but you remember that moment. And then when your mom rescued you, when you thought uh, you had uh, entered early fatherhood, <laughs> you know, those are two moments that really, I bring up those two moments, Craig, because Despite of all the things we do in our life, there are always memories that really some haunt people, some inspire people. Your father showing up for your game and your mom basically coming to the rescue because she did something that enabled you to relax. Talk about those two key moments of parenting. Even though your father wasn't there, that was a key parenting moment that he provided for you. That stays with you today. It probably carries into your parenting with your with your children today. And then your mom being there for you at a moment of doubt, frustration, fear. But both of them were there at different times. Yeah, I mean, you're you're, you're talking about the part of my book where I, uh, I, I I I almost became a teenage father. I was almost a, a statistic at the age of fourteen, mm-hmm. uh, no less. I, I made a a, a a a bad choice. I made mm-hmm. a bad choice, and you know what? I write about it because I, I wrote about it because I wanted people to understand uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And, 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 and I think a lot of folks can relate to this, this idea that, you know, there's that night or sometimes that day, but usually it's, it's that night where you went left, but you could have gone right. Right. Went right and, and, and had you made a different decision, it would have altered the course of your life in a dramatic way. Mm-hmm. Um, that almost happened to me. I got mm-hmm. lucky. And, and, and I, at that point in my life, I, was, I didn't have much of a relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was afraid of my mother, uh, deathly afraid. <laughs> so I, I couldn't talk to her about it. And it was a situation where, you know, this young lady was convinced she was pregnant. And I, like, I had to, I had to do something. This was not one of those situations where uh, inaction was an option. Right. And, um, and I write in the book about how I went to my, my aunt. And it was my aunt that finally convinced me that I had no choice but to talk to my mother. Right. Uh, but my mom has always been, long before we started calling people fixers, my right. mom was a fixer. Like, it was... It was um, that that obviously was an extreme example, but there were so many other times in my life where I thought I was out of options. <laughs> I didn't know what yes. I was going to do. And I prayed to God and put trust in Betty Jo Melvin and, and Betty Jo Melvin always came through and still does now, mind you, in a different way. My dad, you know, wrote about that, that, that part in the book with Sean where he showed up at my little league game and the memory stayed with me uh, because it was so rare to that point. My, my dad, um, and, and again, now looking back on it, knowing what we know about addiction, about mm-hmm. it being a disease and not a weakness, mm-hmm. I understand why he wasn't there. I understand why he had walled himself off from our family and society at large. But back then, I was a kid. You know, right. I was a kid who wanted my my, my dad to to be proud of me and see me, uh, and certainly watch watch my little league games. And so when he showed up uh, that evening, and I saw him. Uh, down the third baseline there on the on the fence. It's a, it's a memory that, that stayed with me because it was so rare. That being said, now um, he's everywhere. Like, yes. I, you know, I, he was up two weeks ago. My son had a soccer game. My dad was right there with me on the sideline. <laughs> um, and 30 seconds in, my, my boy hadn't scored a goal all season. 30 seconds in, 
dribble, 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 shoot, score, first goal of the game. And and me and my pops are high-fiving like he had just won a green jacket at Augusta. Yes. You know, um, it was, it was the book is um, an emotional book. And I would say emotional because I told people, when I get a book like this, I have to slow read it. Because sometimes it'll hit points where I go, oh, 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 I'm about to, I'm about to go there. I'm not. Let me finish this moment. And because um, I remember a, a moment with my dad, um, 1992, when I owned a comedy club, and my dad had never, ever been to anything I've been, and he just showed up at the comedy club, and uh, it was sold out. And I looked in the lobby. I said, "What you doing here, Dad?" He go, "I come to see my son." Oh, and, and he man. looked around. And he looked, "Wow, this you, this you, this you." And I went, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, because I always said sir to my dad. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, he said, he said, I'm proud of you, son. And, um, and, and like I said, this is this, because that's what the book did to me as a dad. Because when you start talking about incarceration and you talk about, remember you, talk, you said earlier, right turn, left turn, those turns. I always say that when I was in college, you know, you, you played as a fraternity. I played Omega Sci-Fi. And you always do stupid things. I remember the, the big brother said, we want some plants. Well, we didn't have no money. And so uh, I remember this, it was this, this giant open field where they had plants back in the day. And me and my lion brothers, we went and stole these plants, man. I mean, if you look back on it, Craig, from the freeway, you would have seen us running across this field with these plants, okay? So anybody could have went, what are those black dudes, boys doing right. running with all these giant plants? Right. And I had a little Fiat uh, X19, which is a two-seater, and the truck was in the front. So I had to put the f- plants in the front, and it was blocking my windshield. So uh, all along the way, I could have stopped and stopped by the police and been incarcerated. And my life could have changed on that right turn, left turn that you were talking about earlier. You are meeting men who've done something far worse than what I've talked about, but they have made a mistake. And sometimes because they made a mistake, we don't give them a second chance because we feel that they are unworthy of that second chance. <laughs> and then in your book, you talk about, guess what? They are fathers, too. Yep. Let's talk about that journey of, of you doing a story. I think basically changed your life. And it started with Camp Grace. Yeah, it was one of the most impactful stories I've ever done. Uh, there's a and I don't even remember how we found out about this camp, but. Um, I was probably reading some article in, in an obscure publication about this um, summer camp at a maximum security uh, prison in uh, California, Salinas State Valley Prison yes. is the name of the facility. And for one week every summer, um, they bring in about a dozen or so kids to basically have a, a camp experience with their dads. Right. I mean, you know, arts and crafts and they play games and they sing songs and they do all the stuff that you would do at a, at a camp. I mean, these kids are between the ages of, you know, seven or eight and, and 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. And the, the guys who are part of the program have to um, exhibit good behavior for right. a full year. The, the, the camp is a, it's a privilege. And um, I went out and spent some time talking to these guys and it ended up being just a, an emotional day because right. these, these are men, first of all, most of them are not going to be getting out of prison. I mean, they've, some of them have, have, have been convicted of, of doing some pretty heinous things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the two women that started the camp, um, both of their husbands were incarcerated and consequently mm-hmm. uh, weren't really a part of the, the, the child's lives. 
they would get the re- occasional visit, you know, on a weekend and you've got the glass and, but they weren't able to really be a part of the child's life. So they came up with this idea for a camp. And I talked to one of the guys out there and I asked him the question. I knew a lot of people were going to be asking when they watched or, or read the story, how can someone um, accused of some of the things these guys were accused of, how, how in what universe do they deserve the right to yes. spend time with, with, with the child. Yes. And without missing a beat, uh, he said to me, tears in his eyes, um, they might be right. I, I may not deserve it. But you know what, Craig? My kids do. Right. My, ki- my kids deserve to know their father. They didn't do anything uh, wrong. They didn't make any bad choices. Uh, and his larger point, and I think this was just as valid, if we're serious about stopping uh, the, the, the prison pipeline that we always talk about, mm-hmm. uh, then, then we need to make sure that kids of, of incarcerated individuals have relationships with them. He spent a fair amount of his time talking to his daughter right. about choices, making yes. good choices, yes. not ending up where he ended up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fantastic program, and it moved me. And it, it also moved me, uh, Rashad, because... You know, my grandmother, and it's the first line in the book, not to give away too much, but, you know, my, my grandmother, um, now when I knew her, she was either born, <laughs> yes. she was going to church, at church, or coming right. home from church. Like, she, <laughs> she only loved the Lord. Yes. Uh, but apparently, long before I came along. Well, the, I'm telling uh, you what, Craig, just, just, just say she's a bootlegger. I don't want to give away no more than that. Just say she's a bootlegger. I don't want to give away the earlier part, okay? She's a bootlegger. <laughs> she was a bootlegger. She was a bootlegger. And, um, and, and, and got a second chance. Yes, he did. And had she not gotten a second chance, uh, who's to say whether I would be here right now? You know? But here's the thing I want to point out about that. Now, his grandmother was in the same jail that Martha Stewart was in. Yes. So she got, how many chances has she got? Okay, but in the same facility now, and so so when I when I when I read the book and I'm, and and and, I'm, I'm, and it's, it, like I said, it's an emotional journey because it's your story, but it's a relatable story because I remember when my younger brother was incarcerated in California, and uh, glass talking, and uh, and I was in tears, and 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 he told me he couldn't cry. He said, "I wish I I can't cry. I can't. They can't." He said, "I can't." And my nickname is Ricky. He said, "Ricky, I can't cry." Because they see me crying out here, I, I pay a price when I go back inside. And in that book, you know, the gentleman you interviewed, he said, look, he said, thank God I have a cell by myself because yep. now I can cry. And yep. so I love the fact that you were humanizing people because we, we see these, we see this, we see the violent sides and nobody's trying to downplay that. But we have made mistakes. There are people on the other side of this that have to deal with it emotionally. These are kids. And like one of them said, look, um, it's all right early on when you're playing cards and you're playing catch. But when they become teens, the conversation becomes different. And that's what fatherhood's all about, which leads to your whole life of being a father, being connected to your dad and now being a present day father. Let's talk about that, Greg. (laughs) You know, it's, it, um, I, I, think that, um, I think that you can be shaped by negative examples yes. uh, um, just as much as you can be shaped by positive examples. In fact, I think in some instances, maybe even more so. Mm-hmm. So, you know, growing up, I, I didn't know the kind of man that I wanted to be. Um, I didn't certainly know the kind of father that I wanted to be. But up until a few years ago, I knew I didn't want to be anything, anything like my dad. Yes. 
Um, and, 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 and that was what, what motivated me personally and professionally, probably to a certain extent now that, I, now that I'm, I'm talking about it, but uh, no, it, it's, it's, it's funny because I have to remind my kids sometimes that I have a job and, and, and consequently I, I cannot be at their beck and call, uh, day and night, uh, because, you know, when my dad was there, when we were younger, it was it was big. Like it was a wedding or funeral yes. or graduation or that that little league game that I, I write about that I remember because it was so weird. Dad didn't show up for stuff in part because he worked third shift at the post office, but in in larger part because because of the addiction issues that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, I've I've gone to the other end of the spectrum. So if you know I'm there for soccer games and my daughter yes. had a a gymnastics recital last Sunday morning. And, you know, so I'm, I'm physically present as often as, and as much as I can be, you know, pick, I do school pickup and, <laughs> and I try to do it all because, you know, my dad didn't do any of it. Now, mm-hmm. now the problem that, that, that you create when you do that, and I, it took me a while to figure this out. I've created expectations. Yes. So if, if I'm not there to go, like, oh, daddy's got to travel uh, for work. Well, Daddy, why can't you? Why can you take a later flight? Or maybe can you go tomorrow? And I've had to say a few times, you know, that it's the job that pays for, for all of this. <laughs> you, know, you don't get to go to dance, or you don't get to go to soccer if Daddy's not hopping on plane. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So, so that that's the that's the that's the, the unfortunate part. But they're you know they're starting to understand. But it's funny as you become a parent, how you at some point become you become the kind of, of, for me, at least the kind of father that I used to mock. Yes. I hate it when my dad would talk about, you know, how much something costs. And yes. You don't have money for this. <laughs> and, 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 we, and when we were younger, we didn't. Like, he wasn't lying. Like, we knew we didn't have a lot of money. We knew we had enough. With my kids, you know, I've, I've said a few times, well, we can't afford this. And my son, without Mr. Lovito, say, well, yes, we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can and I'm like, and then you then you find yourself trying to come up with a, a new excuse, like, uh, well, maybe we can't afford it, but that we don't need it. You don't need that. Right, well, that right, is, right, right. You know, so it's uh, it's hard. It's you know, hard. Craig, it, it, I know we're about to wrap up. But I want to bring up a very um a, f- a fun moment as a parent that I I, I want to share with you because you wrote about it when your son climbed into bed and you know right. and then your kids when they sleep if you if you don't have kids children of you got a very young child yeah. when they climb into bed they forget you in bed they they kids, kids are the worst sleepers in the world especially when they get that six to ten years of age they oh, the yeah. worst sleeper and so when you said that in the book you say you 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 you, you, you may miss that. I remember when I talked to my daughter when she was like 17. I said, hey, won't you, won't you hop in bed and watch a TV? She said, what you talking about? I said, you know, can we not watch a TV? Can we not watch TV together? Remember when we used to go, I don't do that no more, Dad. Uh-uh. No, no, we're not doing that. So <laughs> I would tell you this, Craig, that moment brought, brought laughter to me. It brought back memories. As your book, you know, the, the amazingly good book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father, man. Uh, it's a great read. And, and like I said, it slowed me. When I said the word slowed me because I was becoming emotional. Because, like I said, my father was a beer drinker. My father worked hard as a truck driver. My father, like I said, was he in my life? I don't know. But did he shape me to be the man I am today? Yes, he did, because he had a role in it. And that that role has made me to be the man I am. I like to believe I'm a good parent to my daughter, a good husband to my wife. 
And uh, those are the things that, that the stories that you tell out of this book, from the incarcerated to uh, individuals who raised you as a family, the community, and whether teachers who shaped you as third grade teachers who shaped you as, as you go through life and, and you went to school and you, you didn't want to shame your uncle when you didn't pledge Cap Apsa. <laughs> but it was all good, man. I, I love your book, Craig. I want to appreciate you for putting it out there, man. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation. You're very good at what you do. Thank you for having me. Okay, we talk soon, man. I'm going to put this out. I got, look, I got a nice little social media. I'm going to put that out there in my, my newsletter. We're going to get that out there for you. Okay, Craig? Thank you, sir. Be okay, well, sir. okay? All right, bye-bye. We will be right back with more money-making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. It's finally here, the season of celebration. And no matter how you celebrate with family and friends, whether you're preparing for Reyes Magos or Karamu, lighting the menorah, or going to Midnight Mass, Kohl's has just what you need to make those traditions special. Plus, you'll find gifts for all your loved ones. Send warm wishes with cozy fleeces, sweaters, loungewear, blankets, and throws. Support minority-owned or founded brands by giving gifts from Human Nation and Shea Moisture. Or treat them to everyone's favorite activewear from top brands like Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour. And in the spirit of giving, Kohl's Cares is donating $8 million to local nonprofits nationwide committed to the health and well-being of our communities. No matter how you celebrate, when you shop at Kohl's, you're right where you belong. So this season, give with all your heart with great gifts from Kohl's or Kohl's.com. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide to this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Despite being known for loud, bombastic comments and his trademark propensity to debate, a much softer side of Stephen A. Smith is revealed when discussing the inspiration for his success. The final product is for the fans. I'm about the work, the process, the grind, the day in and day out, mm -hmm. meticulous, tedious work that you have to put in to perfect your craft. And the reason why that resonated with me so profoundly, Rashawn, is because that's what I attach to all my work. Everybody right now is celebrating Stephen A's world coming on ESPN Plus, or they're talking about my sports and it was Stephen A Smith, the NBA show, or they look forward with first take. All I think about is going day to day and making sure that I do everything that I can to deliver to the audience what their expectations are of me and to exceed those expectations. If you want to hear this full interview with Stephen A Smith, visit MoneyMakingConversation.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. 
My next guest is a longtime friend. Her name is Nikki Walton. Nikki is a best-selling and NAACP award-winning nominated author, TV personality, popular podcast host, which we will talk about in detail, licensed psychotherapist, which we will talk about in detail. In 2008, Walton launched CurlyNikki.com, which became the number one natural hair care blog site in the world, reaching millions of women in over 30 countries and influencing the marketing and formulation of products for major beauty brands. In 2021, Walton launched, Nikki that is, Good Mornings with Curly Nikki, a daily morning show to help listeners find peace in chaos and light in darkness. It debated in the top five in spirituality on Apple Podcasts. Nikki Walton is dedicated to helping people find freedom through their natural hair, healthier lifestyle choices, and ultimately through their spiritual enlightenment. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation. It's been too long, but finally she has arrived. Nikki Walton. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. You have a powerful, powerful platform. I absolutely appreciate everything you do to keep us all inspired and pushing for greater, like leveling up, always leveling up. Well, you know, I thank you. Thank you. You know, we've, we've known each other for a long time. You know, when Steve and I was at HarperCollins and we was introduced when your first book came out. And, uh, and it, I want to start there. I want to start there because of the, the natural hair care boom which I like to believe you were in front of. And now it seems to be, you know, we've seen uh, lawsuits. We've seen, uh, we've seen corporate structures change. We've seen uh, the military service change their standards. With that being said, let's talk about that journey that started. And it started before 2008, but then you launched your site, curlynicky.com in 2008. So, but a lot of people questioned your journey, your decision, and said, hey, what's wrong with straight hair? You never said there was anything wrong with straight hair or processed hair or permed hair. It just say, why can't I do it naturally? Correct? Exactly. Let's get some healthy options some versatility. I've never been anti-straight hair or anti-weed or even anti-relaxer. I just wanted to show women that they had the option to embrace and work with their texture which can truly improve your quality of life. I mean, I grew up being afraid to get in a swimming pool. I grew up being afraid to get in a drop top car. I grew up being afraid to go on vacation without a plan for my hair. You know, you can't go to a job interview unless you already know like what I'm going to do with my hair. And when you're trying to figure that out, you're not preparing for the interview itself, right? You're not on your A game. Right. So learning how to work with your hair, learning and like learning how to appreciate it and feel good in your own hair, frees up some bandwidth to be able to actually succeed and focus on the things that need to. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it completely changes your entire life when your hair isn't the foremost, the foremost thought in your mind. Okay, let's, let's, you know, I grew up with six sisters. Okay, I'm not saying I'm an authority on anybody's hair, especially my own. I don't even have hair, okay? <laughs> so You but, did at some point. I'm I, I, I had it, I had it, but I thought I was looking good. I still think I'm looking good without it. So I, we were work with that. Did you ever have a pro? Did you ever pick it out? Oh, girl, I had it all. I thought I was a baby Michael Jackson because we was the same <laughs> age. So Mike and me, we were going out there and grooving together. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I look at the... Uh, what exactly, because I want to really get a clear definition of what natural hair is, because my mom, you know, she would take a curling iron to my sister's hair and straighten it out, okay? Now, is that 
natural hair or, that, or are we saying that that's what straightening is? Yeah, no, that is heat style natural hair. So okay. that's what I grew up with. We weren't allowed to get perms or relaxers in my household. That was mm-hmm. the decision that we were going to have to make when we, you know, got out the house. Mm-hmm. But heat styling, that's blow dryers, that's hot curlers, that's pressing combs off the stove, that's flat iron. Mm-hmm. You can heat style your natural hair, but if you don't do it carefully and if you do it too much, you can end up damaging your your natural hair and right. actually cause it to permanently straighten. You have to grow that out or to just get dry and break off, which I dealt with in college when I started playing with heat too much. Right. And now then I'm going to go to my daughter. You know, she was a tennis prodigy, prodigy. And so, you know, wanting to, you know, get it processed, you know, it was quick and easy. And, yeah. uh, and I, I'm not using terminology. I'm not trying to get anybody mad. I'm, not, I'm just speaking Rushan, point of reference. Okay. My sisters, my next point of reference is my daughter, okay? Mm-hmm. And I would say that I did the permanent, oh, we had to stop because of the fact that it broke all our hair out, okay? Yeah. But we were doing it because it was convenient. We were doing it because it lasts a certain period of time. I didn't have to be bothered. Is that what it, is that, is that part of the problem of women succumbing? Convenience, convenience uh-huh. is major. That's all of us. But the problem is why? Why is that more convenient? And it's because of the standard, the society standard that straight hair is better. So it's convenient to get a perm instead of a, a, you know, get your hair flat iron because Mm -hmm. it's going to actually last longer. It might withstand the humidity. If Mm -hmm. you get it wet, you know, it'll stay straighter, you know, versus you having it pressed out. So Mm -hmm. it's convenient if you're trying to mimic a certain standard of beauty. But it's less convenient, you know, if you're actually trying to work with the texture, like my hair doesn't grow out of my scalp straight. You know, right. if I worked with the highly textured coils and waves, then it's convenient to do a twist out. You right. know, it's convenient to keep it in twist. It's convenient to do a curly bun. So mm-hmm. it's just like we have to change the way we think about stuff. On the other hand, mm-hmm. natural hair is a lot. Our hair is amazing. And we are, some of us are blessed with great density. Like my daughter, her hair comes, like it goes to her butt. That's how long it is. Mm-hmm. But it's three times as thick as mine. Mm-hmm. And it takes like a whole Saturday to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would never let her know that it's a burden. Like as it is, it takes from like 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. for mm-hmm. the styling process. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, so when I'm doing her hair, it's like, oh, your hair is so gorgeous. Oh my goodness, you have so much hair. So trying to instill in her your hair is beautiful as it is. You don't need to do anything mm-hmm. to be better. <laughs> You're right. already perfect. Now, you was, you was talking about your hair from mm-hmm. 9 to 5, and you in, you empower her with the knowledge that she's beautiful with her natural hair. Now, yeah. that empowerment leads to a lot of adult conversations that you have with women who aren't kids anymore, who may have mm-hmm. kids, who may have been um, pushed in the, in the wrong direction about what beauty is because I always tell people this is that what you, what you, what you, what people think of you can lead you in a lot of different directions. Yes. If people are saying positive things about you, then it can uplift you and motivate you to success. If people drop a knowledge that you have to look a certain way to appeal to a certain lane of success, it also can diminish your success story or opportunity because you feel if you're not looking like that, how can you be successful? Exactly. Now so, it's very, very challenging and you have to find a center within yourself so that yes, you receive constructive criticisms, but that you're not on a roller coaster going up and down with people praising you or people putting you down. When I first decided to go natural, my family was not for it. And it wasn't coming from a place of um, hate. 
it was coming from a place of protection. They right. wanted to see me have the most, you know, opportunities the, to get into the best schools, to get the best jobs. And they honestly didn't think because of the society that we live in that I would have the opportunity to do that with my hair and looking like this, right. you know? So they were like, no, no, no. We sacrificed so much for you. Just, just wear it straight. Right. And I couldn't, <laughs> yeah. I, I respect them and I love them, but I knew that that advice wasn't something that I could take. You know, because I was come, I was beginning to come into my own and into my self love, and I'm like, if the world can't accept me how I was born, if you know this job or this school, this university can't accept this in this package without it, you know, being modified, then I don't need to be there. I'll take it somewhere else and succeed there. And thankfully, you know, I paved a way for myself and other women who look like me to be able to stand in rooms and stand in the light with their hair the way it naturally grows. And if I want to straighten it tomorrow, which I do sometimes. I can do that and I'll feel just as pretty that way. But now, thank God, I, own, I don't only feel pretty when my hair is straight because I went through that, you know, all through college. I only felt pretty when my hair was straightened. And that's not healthy because that's not what it looks like most of the time. Well, you know, um, it's really interesting because when I'm talking to, I'm talking to Nikki Walton, um, founder of the uh, CurlyNikki.com website. And I'd like to say um, movement. Let's, let's say CurlyNikki.com movement. Because, ah, thank you. Yes. <laughs> you know, but you know, you have to deal with a lot. Let's let's go and break it down when we talk about natural hair, because natural hair within our black community, okay, mm-hmm. you had to deal with that, you know, and then you Don't had to deal with each other. Right. <laughs> then you have natural hair within the white community, because they really yes. didn't understand Don't what's understand. wrong with your hair. Why your hair all over the place? Why is it so big? You know. Can I or, touch it? Can I touch it? Right. To, so. How do, were you able to, because that's what they were worried about. You know, you know, as a parent, that's all I worry about my daughter. I was just trying to give her a better life, a better opportunity to not endure the pain and suffering that I endured. And if I can get her there a lot better with some advice, that's all they was doing. But in the process of saying who you want to be, that was your community, your people telling you no. Right. So now you have your community telling you no, and then you know in the real world, like we talked about, the military has changed their laws. You still read about periodically where some athlete or some student has been forced to change the hair. The hair was cut during a wrestling match or a sporting event. Just cut their hair because it was natural, and they perceived that it would be a disadvantage for you to go out there with natural hair. It would get in the way. Now, with all that being said, 2008, we 12, 13 years ago. It was uglier back then. How did you break through the noise? You know, I say it's each individual. So when I would post every single day, Monday through Friday, three times a day on Curly Nikki, I was reaching obviously millions of people. But whenever I'm writing those articles, it's like I'm reaching that one person that's on the other side of the screen. And Mm -hmm. I know that she is going to be touched and then she's going to take it to her real life network, her real life community. She's going to impact her mother, her sister, her best friend, her cousins. They're going to see her, you know, applying the the tips and the principles and the love from the inside out, you know, and using these products and getting great results. And her family, her network is going to see it and they're going to be intrigued and they're going to do it. And that was what happened between 2008 and like 2020. (laughs) Like, everything changed and it caught on like wildfire, like wildfire, because people can see she's self-confident and it's not just because her hair looks good. Like something has shifted in her from the inside out and hair 
leads you into that journey. Right. It guides you into that journey, but it's just the beginning of that journey. And the outside world, the people closest into you, they see that change and they're like, I want some of that. And then it just continues to spread out. And so if you're confident in yourself and you go out into the world, right. people don't have nothing to say to you. Mm-hmm. So when we go into like rooms where there's white people, if you are firm here, they don't have anything to say. They have right. nothing to say. And if they do, they're not saying it to your face. Right. Let me ask you this, Curly Nikki, of the Nikki movement, the Curly Nikki movement, uh, Nikki Walden. You know, I've, I've seen so many pictures of you travel, you know, uh, and it was always a journey of like trying to find yourself in my mind, you know, because I tell everybody, you know, in 2016, when I stopped managing Steve Harvey, I had to find myself. I didn't even see myself as being successful because I didn't have a voice of what success was. And so I don't find that as a negative when I say that, because if you don't have a defined understanding of who you are, then how can you chase success? If you do chase success, it's going to be temporary because confusion is going to set in. And when the mistakes happen that you don't understand how to fix, then failure will become the champion. And so those journeys, and because these journeys are going to lead to your relationships I'm going to be talking about, which is going to lead to your very popular Good Mornings with Nikki Curly Nikki podcast that's right now in the top five on spirituality on Apple Podcasts. Those journeys, talk to me about that. Yeah, so I could tell in about 2013, after meeting you, I had hit the bestsellers list with my book with HarperCollins, um, very successful you know, have a husband, healthy kid, the house, the bins, mm-hmm. big diamond, traveling all over the world, you know, doing great nonprofit, like organization partnerships for content on curlynicky.com, beautiful, charmed life, Dr. Oz spots, Steve Harvey spots, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out with you, <laughs> real full life, but I wasn't happy. And mm-hmm. I'm like, if I can't be happy with all of this stuff, and I'm still looking for the next magazine interview, the next TV spot, the next this, the next at the bigger diamond, the bigger car. Like I'm never going to be happy. And I could feel that emptiness. And so I knew I needed to continue to seek further. And Mm -hmm. I had already been on a spiritual journey. I've been on one since I was a kid. My parents said I started asking questions at like seven. Mm -hmm. I was raised Catholic and they had no answers for me. And so (laughs) I just decided to start reading again. And I read probably 600 books between 2012 and 2018 mm-hmm. from all the different world religions, traveled to India, traveled to Spain, traveled to Africa twice, mm-hmm. you know, and sitting in these different ashrams and temples and churches. And at some point I, when I was in Jerusalem, I could, I'm like, no matter where I am, this presence is this love. There's like an inner exhale right. an inner peace. Like right now, if you can, you at home and you too, Rashawn, just like lower your shoulders a little bit. Mm-hmm. and like breathe into your stomach and let your son, the tension in your stomach go and just kind of like come into your body and come mm-hmm. into the moment. And it's a different way to exist. It's mm-hmm. like being home, being in church, no matter I'm at church, wherever I am, it's like there's everything is holy. So when I noticed that it didn't matter where I was or who I was with, I'm like, it's always here. This happiness, this natural peace is always right here where I am. And that was freedom for me. And I started reading more specifically about enlightenment and what that meant to different cultures and to different people and different religions. And it all pointed back to the same thing. There's a light that we all have, but most of us are unaware of it. And so then we seek stuff out here, the shiny things out here to try to replace that. But if you can just find that light within your true purpose and the success 
And all of that unfolds from that light. But you have to be aware of that light here or you'll be distracted and empty looking out here in the world. You know, it's really interesting because uh, my gift is seeing people. For, what, for who they are, what they can be. And, you know, I've seen you a lot. Like we, and we have hung out. I can remember sometimes hanging out at the Neighborhood Awards or the Hoodie Awards, whatever <laughs> time so of our life, backstage. And, and, but I, and, and, you know, even in those periods, I saw a talented person, but I didn't see a voice. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's almost like you, and this is not an insult, you're almost like, you know, you, you know you have this uh, crowd of people and then this person trying to get into the crowd. That was yep. who I always kind of saw you and I couldn't really figure out why you couldn't be in the crowd, even though you had the statue, you have, you were beautiful, you were articulate, you had a resume, but it almost felt like you were trying to look at me, look at me. I got something to say. I got something to say. Now I see a much more focused person. There have been some changes in your life, but you're more focused about you. And I tell people in order to be successful, you can talk to anybody. A lot of people use the word selfish in a bad way. But at some point in your life, to be successful, it has to be about you. Yeah. And if it's never been about you, then guess what? Confusion sets in and also frustration sets in. And I saw a talented, frustrated person. Why isn't this talented, frustrated person frustrated anymore? <laughs> because I found my message and my passion. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, when you saw me, I was definitely in the light and, mm-hmm. and not in this light, right. but I was in the light, like the world knew who I was as mm-hmm. this figure, this, you know, natural hair public figure. But when I would go on TV for that, it didn't feel completely, I wasn't completely me. Yes. And I still didn't know who me was, like mm-hmm. what that was. Mm-hmm. And so I dug deep, like from the time, the last time I saw you, like 2014, mm-hmm. Until last year, I've been off the map. You know, it's it's been all about, like you said, it's not, you can call it selfish. You know, I call it like being selfless. I needed to get the Nikki ego out of the way. Mm -hmm. You know, the the part of Nikki that thought she knew where Nikki's life was heading and what Nikki needed to do. And most of that came from what other people thought Nikki should do. You know, almost all of my desires and wants and the goals were coming from society and from the people closest to me. And even people just kind of on the outside, like in the comment section, like you should do this and you should do this and you should launch that. And like you said, you get confused. You don't know which way to turn. And so when I shut all that out and I went inward and found this, I could see very clearly at times, like I helped black women find freedom mm-hmm. through raising their natural hair. And now I helped myself find like a deeper, more real, more full freedom through finding this light that we all have. (laughs) No matter who you are, you have it. You're sitting in it, you're sitting as it. And now I want to help people move into that freedom. And it's the only button, I have one switch. No matter what I'm interviewed about, I was being interviewed by like Teen Vogue about hair and skin and it immediately turned, it turns to this. This is the only switch I can talk about it till I'm blue in the face. I'm here on this earth at Mm. this time to present this message of self-love and self with a capital S, not just your human, but this presence that's beyond your human. Love it. Love it. 
Now, I would get phone calls, you know, Rashad, you know, all these women showed up. They showed up. They're sitting on pillows and they, they want to hear me speak and they relax. <laughs> you know, and, and but, but that was that journey. You know, you know, 2014 may be the last time I saw you, but we've been talking and the yeah, talking that's 2017. Was, yeah. That's that call you're talking about. Yeah. Tracy was there. Absolutely. And DC, you wanted to go up to New York and he was working out some storylines with Dr. Oz TV show. What can we do with that? But I always felt that and Tracy would go Tracy's about producer for 3015 Media Inc and so she would go and go we show what we're gonna do I said I don't know if she know who she is I say I said I don't I don't get her and I would tell her and Tracy go you don't get her I said nope I don't get her okay because it there has to be a certain degree of clarity and now I get you now because I understand there's some because of sometimes yeah I'm gonna just be honest with you a lot of times in your life even though I was talking to you, I felt like somebody else was talking through you, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and now when I'm talking to you, I feel like I'm talking to the person that's making the decisions about what you want to be. Not because it's an opportunity, it's what you want to do. Absolutely. And so it's so, what I'm here to do. And I took that advice you gave me back in 2017. You're like, Nikki, you are amazing. You will be successful. You have to get clarity. I can't help you be successful in spirituality until you make some moves in spirituality and step out there and start sharing your message and stop being scared, basically. And so I took that medicine and started just kind of dipping my toe in, you know, and easing in there. And I reached back out after I had jumped in. And <laughs> now deep. you, you jumped know, in. I found, my, I found my voice. Come on now. Good morning. We're yeah. curling Nikki. Come on now. <laughs> Natural hair, spirituality, found yourself. Been stepped on a little bit emotionally, been been ran over like we're supposed to get run over. I've been run over. Okay. Yeah, well, you when, into this. It's like when you get ran over, when you get beat up a little bit, you know, <laughs> like it brings you more clarity. And yes. so I'm radically grateful for the lessons, you know, in these last 10 years to just bring me closer to myself, to tell, leave nothing but this love here. So tell us about this amazing podcast that is so fantastic on Apple Podcasts. Yes, now, yes. I'm going to just tell you so, this. The word spirituality kind of scares some people. Is she going to be preaching to me? I don't oh. know the Bible that well. Oh my God, I don't even go to church. <laughs> what is she doing? She's girly Nikki. I got straight hair. Can I listen to her? I do. I got perms. Can I listen to her? Tell us about what your... Good mornings with Curly Nikki is all about. And it's welcome to all people. Yes, welcome to everyone. So in twenty in November of 2020, <laughs> I started doing something different because mm -hmm. I wanted to see something different. So I started waking up and actually getting out of the bed at five o'clock in the morning. And I've done that every day since November 28, 2020. I'd meditate, journal, do my yoga all before the kids got up calling my name or I had to be Curly Nikki, or I needed to be a daughter or a sister, I could just be during those two hours. Mm -hmm. And during that time, like somewhere in the last few months, this idea, this clarity came mm -hmm. that, you know, I share on Instagram every day, but it's words I write, I type many, many words using that platform in a way it's not intended to be used. And I'm like, maybe with all these DMs I'm getting from women and men from all over the world, you know, like my demographic is just expanding and expanding. I'm like, maybe there's another platform that I can answer these questions, you know, because I'm only one person because it was getting overwhelming. And so I thought I set this intention to get up before the sun every morning and it's changed my life. And I'm not going to tell people they have to get up before the sun, but I am going to tell them they need to set an intention by getting quiet and spending time with, you can call it God, you can call it love, you can call it the I am, 
It doesn't need a name because it existed before language did. So whatever you want to call it, source, the universe, that, we're going to sit with that every morning for just five to 10 minutes. And then you go into the day, like you said, leading, you know, with your, your success or leading with your passions, they're going to lead with their love, with this light. They're going to go out into the world as light, as love. And it changes their lives and the lives of the people that they bump into along the way. And the feedback has been tremendous. You know, it's already grown greatly. Just it's only, this is, we're moving into week two mm-hmm. and it's amazing. Like word of mouth, you know, cause it's not preaching. It's an easing. It's a, it's a reminding. So you already know this, whoever you are listening to me, you already know that you feel stuck and you feel unhappy. Even right. if you appear to be happy, something's not quite right. And you know, it's not quite right. And you're right. like, this can't be life. I'm living the same day over and over again. This sucks. That's how everyone feels until they find this. And once you have this, everything else starts to work. No, good mornings with Curly Nikki is the podcast, a very popular podcast that you can find on uh, Apple Podcasts, which, you, you know, I would tell you, if, you, if you're not on Apple, where you at? Okay. Exactly. So, Got to get on Apple. You know, the Apple <laughs> is, is the place to be. I'm on Apple Podcasts. And so, but when I look at different lanes, this is a different lane. Your lane is different from my lane, my money-making conversation. I'm trying to motivate people through entrepreneurship. You're trying to motivate people through spirituality, which would, in some ways, slide into people who want to be entrepreneurs, people who want to find the right person in their life, people who want to graduate from high school, people who want to graduate from college, people who want to meet the right person in their life, people who want to be able to get along with their kids. It is such a huge bandwidth of opportunity for you. Because mine is really a niche, rich. Your is, you're covering all these bases. How with <laughs> confidence do you feel you'd be able to cover all these bases, Nikki Walton? Because I know that there is only this one presence, this one love, and mm-hmm. it is the essence of everything. Mm-hmm. So it is the essence of your health. It's the essence of your wealth. You know, and so if you can get into touch with this and practice it, meaning keeping some attention on it, you have your thoughts. But right next to your thoughts, there's a place inside where you don't have to quiet your thoughts. There's mm-hmm. a place inside that's already quiet. There's a place inside that's already relaxed. There's a place inside that's already meditating. So if you can get into that place, then all of those other areas work. And it's just, that's just what it is. <laughs> it's like law and it works beautifully. And I've seen it happen in thousands of women's lives that I've worked with. In my life, I'm living through, absolutely living through. My whole life changed you know, in a matter of like three or four years from the inside out after finding this and then practicing it every day and every moment. She's a nominated author. I first met her on the first book at HarperCollins in the 2013, Better Than the Good Hair. Then the second hair was When Good Hair Goes Bad. Yep. <laughs> and now, <laughs> Good Mornings with Curly Nikki. CurlyNikki.com is a website where it's worldwide. Over 30 countries, millions of people. Our traffic is amazing. She has a total ownership of CurlyNikki.com now. One of the changes that she's promoting, ownership and controlling your voice. She's not jumping on the outside trying to get in. She is in. And when she's inside, she's changing lives. And welcome to the world of being who you are because we need a responsible individual with a responsible voice being able to show us the light. Thank you, Curly Nikki, for coming on Money Making Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. We will be right back with more money-making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. Every year, compliance regulations change thousands of times. And every year, ADP makes thousands of seamless platform updates so businesses can focus on everything else, like running their business. Grow stronger with ADP. HR, talent, time, and payroll. 
Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when there are parched or windy conditions out there, you gotta be extra careful with things like burning yard waste. After all, wildfires can start anywhere, even in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go, almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about 9 or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Lamar Rucker began his career on daytime soap operas as the world turned and all my children. Lamar discovered when COVID-19 hit, it changed the game in television production. You know, everything now is being so condensed, one, because you're also trying to not only minimize costs, but minimize this exposure. these exposure risks mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. So you're literally working virtually every day for a month, one day off, right. every six, you know, seven days or something mm-hmm. like that. The hours are crazy, so you've got to take care of your body and be careful about being fatigued and make sure you're getting the proper rest and recovery and nutrition. Nutrition. We I have COVID compliance officers on right. set. You know, again, we get tested um, on a regular basis. I think that people are doing the best they can because, again, they also don't want to get shut down. If you want to hear this full interview with Lamont Ruck, visit MoneymakingConversation.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is Dr. Katrinelle Davis. She is an associate professor of sociology and African-American studies at Florida State University. She is a social change scholar inspired by the struggles of working class people in urban areas who contend with extraordinary socioeconomic constraints despite their best efforts. Basically trying to get out of the hood and nobody's trying to help. Through a teaching and scholarship, Davis explores how racial, gender, and class biases, as well as institutional constraint, shape black neighborhoods their resources, and how social groups navigate through these existing hurdles, which leads us to Dr. Davis's latest book, Tainted Tap, Flint's Journey from Crisis to Recovery. Again, Tainted Tap, Flint's Journey from Crisis to Recovery, focused on the origin and health consequences of the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, by the way, where she was born. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Dr. Catronelle Davis. How you doing, doctor? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. Other than getting tongue-tied on the title of your book, Tainted Tap, Flint's Journey from Crisis to Recovery. Now, when I see that, has there been a recovery? Well, they're in the process of recovery, but Flint has not recovered from the water crisis. And the water crisis, as we can say, is one giant cover-up. Can I say that? 
public. I love that. Let's okay. talk about that cover up. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Let's let's call it a cover up because that's what it is. Absolutely. And so and because a lot of people knew it before the people were drinking the water, like in 2014, when I think General Motors stopped accepting water, okay, from Flint. So and then the, the local city hall started getting water delivered to them. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. January 2015 where in your book that it was acknowledged that there's a problem with the water and the public was being notified about it. Talk about, let's start there when, when the, I have to say there's a cover-up when the, when the business world is aware because they're covering their bases so they won't get sued, okay? That's why That's they right. stop accepting water. But the general public, and then, and then when they stop accepting it, they didn't tell their employees where the water was coming from. So that's when you start using the word cover-up. And, mm-hmm. and I use it in a professional manner because I don't know the words you can use. If you if you know some information that I need to know that's going to affect my life, but you refuse or fail to tell me, that's a cover. So you were born in Flint. You're a person who's Absolutely. seen this neighborhood transition. You talk about how all the all the because um, in 2017 it was recognized that Flint, Michigan, was the poorest city in the United States. That's correct. Your story in the book basically starts in 2015, correct? Well, the story, the main story about the crisis Mm -hmm. starts in um, 2015, but the story about what's happened to Flint Mm -hmm. actually began in the 1960s. Absolutely. I think it's important for us to understand that this whole, the struggle that that Flint faced uh, during this crisis um, is a struggle that has a lot to do with this history of uneven development. Right. This whole idea of we're going to pour money into the downtown areas, but the, let the the north side of the of the city struggle and suffer from decay, um, uh, no maintenance, etc. And so, yeah, this cover up uh, or the, the the part of the cover up that we're very familiar with starts somewhere in 2015. But I would say it starts a bit earlier than that, because what's what the public didn't know about the crisis is that the state of Michigan had it effectively uh, disinvested from its water protection protocols uh, somewhere around 2006, 2007. So even if it was in even if the EPA and the state was doing what it was supposed to do, around 2015 uh, or in in position to do to respond to residents' concerns, um, Mm -hmm. we would have seen a better response had they been positioned to do the things that they were supposed to do, had they been agencies working like they're supposed to work, but they weren't. And so we're talking about a cover-up, and we're also talking about years of benign neglect. Dr. Katrina Davis, you know, when you, we say 2015, we say it happened earlier. I'm going to show you an example of recently that how the, how the state can change the rules on you. Don't tell you they've changed the rules, but it in fact, it in fact impacts low-income people the worst. The That's state of right. Texas, just recently, when they had the big freeze because they had changed the way the billing system went down and changed the way the grid was being allocated, and so the state of Texas was shut down during the freeze. And so that would, no one would never have known that if the freeze didn't come along. And so people were being billed differently. People were suddenly getting $2,000 bills when they were previously getting the normal maybe $100 bill. The bills were tied to their bank accounts, so the money was automatically being pulled out of their bank account, whether they had the money or not. 
And so these are situations where you are saying, like you say, in the social makeup of the world, there are decisions being made. They're not they're not acknowledged that they're major decisions. They're not acknowledged that they're big decisions. But in the end, the person who gets affected the most is the person who has less. And that's what your book is about. Absolutely. I think so So often we pay attention to the absence of overt racism. Yes. Uh, we say no one's burning crosses. Um, no one called me out of my name. No one pulled me off of a counter, you know, at a, at a, or lunch counter because right. I, it's, I'm not supposed to be there. Right. But what we don't pay attention to is the dis, the, the dis is in the, the, the disrespect that poor people mm-hmm. encounter on the daily, because there are things in, in their environment that just aren't right. They're being shorted. Um, when it, with regard to educational services, they're being shorted with regard to environmental protections, being shorted with regard to police protection, fire protection, um, left and right. And right. this is, again, we don't pay attention to these things because we've spent so much time talking about whether or not we're dealing with overt racism, whether or not somebody's playing us. Right. 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 But what we need to be paying attention to is what institutions are doing. Well, you know, here's let's let's slow down my my relationship with you in regards to sociology. Uh, My degree is in mathematics, Dr. Davis. You're an associate professor of sociology and African-American studies at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, I was rolling through college, doing good. And then I took a sociology class and I realized that I was being uneducated. I was not being educated properly about this country's history, especially when it came to African-Americans or what my people had accomplished or why our racism in general or how it was being treated. Basically, I would tell people, when you look at the life of a, of, of, of a black people in history books that they teach you, you know, they brought us over through slavery, they freed us, and then they, then they don't say anything about the World War I participation, World War II participation. Then you go to Brown versus Board of Education. Then you hear about the Martin Luther King speech. You kind of talk about the civil rights speech. Then you hear about the Martin Luther King's assassination. And it kind of stops because it's the Civil War, Civil War, Vietnam War in the Nixon years. So black people kind of like stopped producing after Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King died. That is what, if anybody disbelieves what I'm talking about, just read your books. That's how it's being played to us. Oh, you get the, back in the day, I get the maps from the beer companies talking about the kings and queens, and they'll tell me that, you know, the cotton gin was built by a black person, but it wasn't in any book that I read in high school or Absolutely. elementary school or middle school. It was in something that I bought that had a beer can on it or a beer, or was sponsored by a beer company. And I'm not saying that's negative, but that's how I was being educated. Okay, and so so sociology is key for me because it talks about how people engage and how people treat you in that engagement. So tell us about the impact of what you do as a sociology professor at Florida State and African-American studies, because I want to get to the critical race theory, which has been bombarding the headlines. And maybe you can help my audience digest or understand that a lot better. Well, as a sociologist, I care most about explaining the concrete circumstances that people encounter that make it difficult to make ends meet and do the mm-hmm. things that they need to that that they need to do to take care of their families. Right. Um oftentimes we ignore those things about our realities that make things difficult. Um that are 
um, boundaries or barriers that that seem to be um, hard to to remove, etc. And and I also want to say, in our society, we have a tough time um, believing that um, it's okay for uh, a problem to last longer than 30 minutes, right? And so if it's not solved in 30 minutes, we're almost in a space where we're going to move on even if it's not solved. And so I think part of the problem that we're dealing with is, one, this whole issue of having a very short attention span right. um, with regard to understanding and even trying to um, deal with process social problems. And then we we also have a problem where we don't, as a society, we're not willing or I don't believe that we've uh, uh, developed the stomach or and or the political will to really deal with um, um, longstanding uh, racial class um, antagonisms and issues. And so what we do we set up curricula where we go around these issues. Yeah, we say um, the problems start stop after we discover that Martin Luther King had a dream um, and we got on board with his dream. And, and now look at those black folks. You know, doors are open <laughs> right. and it's all good. But mm-hmm. the problem is that it's not all good for most black folks. Most, most black folks are near poor which Mm -hmm. means that they're struggling on levels that that are invisible in places that we don't even see because our worlds are so wrapped around what we do and not what other people are really dealing with. So fields like sociology help us understand, um, you know, and it's sometimes academicians, you know, really help us understand what, um, uh, what society's narrative has to say about us, and it's not always very critical of that narrative. Um, But in my work, I try to center the problems of the individual, and in particular, Black people, poor Black people, to sort of help us understand both historically, uh, economically, socially, how these problems, how we got these problems, why we still have these problems, and what we need to do to deal with these problems. And again, I think the pushback Um, particularly this pushback with regard to critical race theory is about silencing, you know, what what we know, because I think we know too much and they want to shut us up. Well, I think that if if it's all tied to information, right, the more you know, the more dangerous you can become. Mm -hmm. And so when you when you look at because that's what I discovered, I discovered in my sociology class at the University of Houston that I didn't know enough. And it brought me to tears because of the fact that I thought I was smart. I thought I knew what I needed to know when I realized that I was I was being denied an opportunity to get a full spectrum of education and information. And so when I hear people, whether it's the Trump administration trying to uh, favor the Confederate statues and say they have a place in our society, but don't want to recognize that racism truly exists. I don't know how you can balance the two. I don't know how you can recognize Confederate uh, monuments as saying these are heroes, but you can't recognize the fact that racism is very prevalent. And as you say, it's not always overt, but you still have redlining of districts. You still have rezoning. You have you have people going around right now. They are it's still auditing President Biden. Okay, that's racism. Let's go be mm-hmm. real because it's tied to black voters. It's black to people who believe there's a need for change. And so when you look at what you're doing and you look at the critical race theory that's being bantered about, what is the problem? Is it information or is it is it a is it something that was done in 1979 trying to be implemented in 2021? 
it's I've I've looked at some of these people that that have commented on c- critical race theory, particularly those people who have been against uh, this particular theory being taught um, at the post secondary level, primarily because that's what it, where it's taught. Right. Essentially, my my take on their argument is that um, this happened a long time ago. Right. And why should we talk about you know information that may or may not be true? It's really interesting. Um, the the argument is that it happened a long time ago. Then the 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 corollary to that is that this information may not be true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then it's how how come we can't get along? Why can't we get along, right? <laughs> right. Um, I'm an Italian American, right? right. Um, and mind you, this person doesn't want to own that he has white skin. You right. know, mm-hmm. and that skin mm-hmm. speaks for him. Right. You know, uh, uh, but I'm an Italian American. Why should we have to, you know, learn about this history? Uh, and it's 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 part of the American program that we have, and that program is all about denial. Absolutely. You know, we Absolutely. deny what's true. We deny what's real in the lives of people who are dealing with tough stuff. Okay, and then we turn around and we blame them for what they're experiencing as though they created those issues. But I would submit mm-hmm. that the real problem is that we've never gotten around to dealing with the fact that when black folks stopped giving their labor to white folks mm-hmm. after slavery, mm-hmm. never quite stopped being the white man's burden. Right. You know, and we, all for the wrong reason. Absolutely. When I, when I hear you talk is, you know, I smile and I, you know, I said, you, you go, girl. You do what you got to do. I need you to be a professor, somebody talking to people in general so they have somebody they can come up and talk to that has an honest conversation that necessarily isn't their color. Because that's where you get honest conversation, when somebody who's not your color comes up to you and communicates you. Because so what happens within our community, sometimes we don't even want to talk about slavery. We want to say that we want to, why, why, why we got to talk about that? You know, we, we're moving forward. There's a section of us that want to talk like that at all. Maybe you may say that we are maybe in an affluent or maybe are, are, are doing well or at a certain tax bracket. But I've always been a person that no matter how successful I've been, Dr. Davis, I always felt that if I can't help more people get where I'm trying to get or where I'm trying to go, then I'm not winning for the overall picture. Isn't That's that right. what we're trying to do? Isn't that what your book, the information we're getting out of your book is that is about a group of people and this happens to be a city. Not not a community, a city where the where where the work factories moved, drugs came in, you know, Burton, which was right um, less than a mile away, and their billing system was different than Flint, Michigan's billing system. Yep. And nobody, and then if 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 the snow was on their street, it got plowed first. Snow was on your street, uh, we we get with you. The trees were dying over there. <laughs> And Flint over in Burden, hey, the tree just can just a leaf can fall off the tree. Oh, excuse me, I got that leaf. Bang. Oh, go about your business. You know, that's what you're talking about in your book. You 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 clearly made me go. You made me mad, Dr. Davis. You made me mad. I wanted to make you mad. You made me mad, girl. Mm. Because you were telling the truth. Why don't people want to hear the truth? Come on. Why? The truth is uncomfortable. Sometimes when certain people hear it, they think that, you know, I'm listening to this truth. And that means that something that I have 
may be taken away. Right. My you, privilege, my the benefits that I that I um, enjoy, I may need to share. You know, oh, they got to put money on this. That money may be taken from some things that my children might or my child might need. Well, you know, right? and and I want to tell you, it's something that was brought up in, in this podcast that I've, I've done related to the book. Uh-huh. Uh, one of my guests shared with me, and, and, and this is a very, very important um, um, statement that he made. And, and this is when I was pushing him to why aren't cities doing what they need to do to take care of everybody? Why are they playing poor people? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and he was talking about, well, we haven't gotten around to dealing with legacy costs, how to help cities deal with costs that they can't deal with mm-hmm. because they, they have poor people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so, I, again, I was pushing him. Why is this the issue? Why hasn't the state and the powers that be mm-hmm. come up with better models? And he said, essentially, we don't have a problem handing a person a food stamp, but we have a problem giving people access to jobs via programs like affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Because you know why? Because when you hand somebody a food stamp, you can label them as a person that's that's um, irrelevant. And then that same person, you can start taking away rights. Okay. Now you give somebody an opportunity through affirmative action, then they can be on a level playing field. That's right. Economically socially. They can move into their neighborhoods. They can bank with their bank. They can do the things that they do. They can eat in the restaurants they eat in. And so I, I know, because I came from the hood. I came from Fifth Ward. I came from a, a neighborhood where my parents had to get us out, and we moved to a little a, a neighborhood a little bit better, but it wasn't that neighborhood. Okay? And so mm-hmm. when I see about you, and your book is right, you talk about when you talk about what it was changing the communities and, and sweeping through, and now they call it gentrification. They put a fancy name on it now. But it's That's the same right. thing. They, they, they gave us a nice title. It gets the same thing. You know, moving black people to lesser communities, less property values, and then go, what's the problem? Now, you say, Rashawn, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like the American Indian? Don't you not realize that that, that ghettos are just fancified reservations. Just fancified reservations. Now, That's what they are. There are some people, I know for a fact, that live in these communities who never leave, who have never driven out, who never shop or eating out of that community. They are trapped into that world. If they're trapped into the world, guess what? You're trapped too. And then, so when you come into that world, you're seen as a stranger, which impacts them, and they're going to treat you different, which may lead to negative consequences. When I started reading that part of your book, it just really made me even more mad, Dr. Davis. You really, you, you're the first book I've ever had on the show just had me positively mad. This is not a, a mad mad, because I can't win because of my skin tone, according to America. Well... I'm sorry that I made you mad, but it's, it's, it's really my job to tell the truth mm-hmm. and to say it in a way where people can understand it, where there's teeth and you understand that this is not a game. Right. Right. They have been playing with our lives. Yes. But for some reason, we don't want to call it um, genocide. Right. We, we, we stop at that. We, we say, well, it's, you know, um, 
uh, we're doing what we can and, and we're not killing people at will and, and things of this nature. But I, I will submit this. If you poison people over time with, with um, materials or, or toxins that could, I don't know, um, make them less smart, make them more prone to violence and anger, right. make them um, less likely to be able to self-govern, what you're doing is, is basically doubling down. You have this theory of who we are, but then you, you poison our communities and help that happen. Absolutely. Right? And so the thing is, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely sorry that I have to let folks know that problems don't get solved. I got to let folks know that um, they're playing poor black people left and right, leaving them out of resources or keeping them from resources that they actually need to make ends meet and to um, take good care of themselves. Um, I have to let you know because it's my obligation, because I don't need us, us as a people walking around thinking that we got it made. We got some work to do. You know, in your book, uh, Tainted Tap, Flint's Journey from Crisis to Recover, in Chapter 6, which is the uh, the blame game, a legal circus and public finger pointing. And this is basically, because what I try to do when I bring individuals on my show talking about their books, I, not try to, I, I don't try to, my job is not to give away the book. My job is to gain interest so somebody will want to read your book. And what okay, you cool. just talked about, it's basically what the blame game is. You know, you know, it's, it's good to say that, you know, that there's a problem in the minority communities because we go black and brown right now because I'm African-American. That's why we're talking about African-American. But the Hispanic community having the same issues. And, Absolutely. And, and the American Indian community is a lost community. OK, it's a lost community. Mm-hmm. And so and so when we talk about through sociology, which guides us through this whole situation here. What is the blame game and who is running the blame game? Well, I would say the the blame game is is essentially this. It's we know that a problem exists. However, we're going to let you believe that you created that problem. (laughs) Or we're going to let you believe that the problem doesn't exist. So that's the first round. Mm -hmm. So then after you you effectively prove that you didn't create the problem, then we have to work at trying to distance ourselves from that blame because we don't want to take that heat. We don't want to be in the seat of or in the be placed in the process of actually trying having to fix the the institutional problems yes. and and replace those strategies and policies that enable us to do the stuff we do. Well, you know, is is here's something interesting because I'm going to close Dr. Dr. Davis, and it's all positive. I, I, you know, uh, when I say I'm mad, it's a good mad because I've, I've been filled with information. The information I got from your book, Tainted Tap, Flint's Journey from Crisis to Recovery. In 2017, Flint, Michigan was the poorest city in America. Who wants that title? Okay. Who wants to know that right down the street, less than a mile, somebody's paying less? And guess what? They, 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 as they say, they look like you. They're just a different color. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, when you look at all this critical race theory, you look at all these arguments about we don't want to let anybody know that the Americans has done nothing wrong. How, and maybe you, you might not can answer this, how did Juneteenth get recognized as a national holiday? How did that slip past when that was the mm-hmm. ultimate level of recognition that black people were enslaved and black people were released due to slavery because they were brought over to this country? Against their will. But somehow I got passed unanimously while a bunch of people were arguing about the critical race theory. Does that make sense to you? 
I'm glad it got passed because I'm from Houston, Texas, and there's always been a holiday in the state of Texas, but it was never a recognized national holiday. So when everybody started getting on board in 2020, I kind of smiled, and I'm happy that in 2021 it was recognized. But how does Juneteenth get passed with all this denial going on in the public's eye about racism and slavery? Hmm. I love that you asked that question, so I'll, I'll be brief. Um, because we can write a dissertation on this, <laughs> but I would I would say that um, you know what, essentially what we're looking at is a political maneuver. Um, we're we're sort of addicted to and attracted to symbolic gestures, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. So I, because I can tell you this, if we can set up a a holiday, um, great. I'm I'm all for it. In Flint, Michigan, we've been celebrating Juneteenth Juneteenth for you know. A long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, um, if you really want to make progress in the black community, you will pass laws that make um, folks accountable for the things that they do to the people that they're supposed to be um, accountable to. It, you you want to pass laws that make things uh, a bit more transparent, right? Give people a seat at the table. Uh, you want to make sure that people aren't being played the extent to which they are being played in their communities. Um, you know, you, you're drinking water that is not safe and, you know, you, they'll take your house away if you don't pay for that, for poison water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're in a space where we love um, symbolic empty gestures, um, but we're not, we don't, we haven't um, summoned the political will to do what's required to move things forward. Dr. Catherine L. Davis, thank you for coming on my show. You're the associate professor of sociology and African-American studies at, you know, they say the Seminole State, Florida State University down in Tallahassee, Florida. Your book, Tainted Tap, Flint's Journey from Crisis to Recovery, is a wonderful read. It's an informative read. It's an educational read. It's a read that will tap into your emotions, give you information that you may not have known or reminded you of an experience or a lifestyle that you once experienced. So you can understand the complications that people are dealing with now, because guess what? They've taken away all of our options or so many of our options within the black community that we have to fight back. We have to scream. We have to some way rob, because guess what? Like you said, if you get, what's your option? Once you, once you corner somebody, you're taking away all their food, taking away all their options to survive. The only option is to be violent. And we can start curb a lot of this violence if we treated everybody equal and gave them an equal opportunity to win. Again, Dr. Davis, thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it was a pleasure. It. Oh, thank you. We will be right back with more Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hollywood is changing its perception of African-American programming. Just ask entertainment trailblazer Deborah Martin Chase, who is currently the executive producer on Queen Latifah's new CBS drama series, The Equalizer. I got in this business because when I was growing up, I did not see people on screen who looked or felt like me. And so I wanted to break down stereotypes. I wanted to create images that would empower us and would help people to understand that, you know, they had the power to do whatever they wanted to do in life. And there was a period in Hollywood where people weren't interested in making movies about women, about people of color. It was all about the big tentpole movies and action movies. I would walk into offices and people's eyes would glaze over <laughs> when I told mm-hmm. them, you know, what I was thinking about. If you want to hear this full interview with Deborah Martin Chase, visit MoneyMakerConversation.com. Keep winning. 
Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk Walk a mile mile in my shoes. shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. My guess is perfect from that statement that I led with leading with your gifts and all that your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning and living your dreams. Because his book is about pushing through failure because that sets you up for success. And his name is Ryan Leak. He's an author, speaker, executive coach, and podcaster. He's known for two documentaries, The Surprise Wedding and Chasing Failure. Ryan's career is split 50% speaking in churches and 50% doing executive coaching through his company, The Ryan Leak Company. He's on the show to talk about his new book, Chasing Failure, How Falling Short Sets You Up for Success. It's stated in his book, kids can dream uninterrupted because their failure has not yet become something that they fear. In the book, Chasing Failure, Ryan lays out the framework you need to chase failure successfully, which means living a life where you are pursuing your dreams, living in your purpose, and and experiencing fulfillment. Please welcome the Money Making Conversation. I hope I laid it out well for him, Ryan Leake. (laughs) Hey, it's an honor to be here. So glad to be on the show. Well, good, my friend. Uh, And I'm going to let you know, uh, one of my my little mentees, uh, Ricky Smiley, kind of remind me a little bit of Ricky Smiley here, Ryan. I'm just going to let you know that, man. I looked at you and I said, that boy looked just like a little Ricky Smiley there, but that's a compliment because he's handsome and you're a handsome guy, too. That is a compliment. I love Rick. Yeah, Rick's a good people, man. We talk about at least two or three times a month about stuff like this, about chasing the dreams, about uh, positioning yourself for success. Now, yeah. this is what, the fifth version of uh, uh, an edition, I should say, of Chasing yeah. Failure? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the first one was really just the story of, of me trying out for the Phoenix Suns and, mm-hmm. you know, diving into the surprise wedding. So that was only about 60 pages. Mm-hmm. Found some typos in it, which is the thing every author hates to hear. And, mm-hmm. you right. know, we kind of kept trying to revisit it and rebrand it. But it just, well, in, in my estimation, you know, kept kept failing. And so... Um, so, you know, five years later, when having a conversation with my literary agent about, Hey, I think you need to, to squeeze this lemon again. And I'm thinking like, Hey, that, that's that I, I already talked about that. And, <laughs> and she challenged me, she challenged me. She said, yeah, but you didn't, you didn't actually market it. You didn't actually like really write like a book book. Right. So how about you actually write a book book this time? Mm-hmm. And so I said, all right, let's do it. 
And, and so here, here we are again. And uh, if at first you don't succeed, then maybe you should try again. Well, I'm going to jump right into it because on Let's the fourth it. version, if we talk in the book, it talks about shame. And shame yeah. is always tied to failure. Because I'm going to go right there because I wanted yeah. to talk about the version because I feel that that stops a lot of people. You know, the fear of yeah. failure, fear of what people would think. And I thought that mm-hmm. chapter should be the proper chapter to start out in this conversation mm-hmm. with because I think it stops a tremendous amount of people. I'm not going to put a percentage on that, but I sure. know I talk to a lot of people. I, I'm, I motivate a lot of people, and it's always tied to the what if. So talk oh, about yeah. the fourth version and that shame and the fear of failure wrapped up into that chapter. Well, you know, you, there can be a lot of uh, what, what are people thinking about this? Mm-hmm. Um, what are, are people going to shame me? How much of that shame is something that I put on myself? Mm-hmm. What are the expect? Who's writing the rules? Right. At some point, you got to ask yourself that question. Mm-hmm. Who's making up the rules to say this is how things have to look? Mm-hmm. And so at some point, you got to wake up and go, OK, what, what, what do I what do I actually really want to do? And do I believe that it can actually make a difference and add value to people's life? And if it can, Mm -hmm. then we should just go for it and Mm -hmm. not wait for other people's permission to do what God has already gifted us to do. And so sometimes we're looking for somebody else's approval before we make decisions or take next steps. And there's so much of a, how are they going to make me feel? But what I've tried to do in this book is almost reverse that a little bit of going, hey, no, you, you need to make a decision about how you're going to feel before you do something, not after. You know, it's really interesting because I, I, I cited that quote, and it came from the foreword of your book, kids can dream uninterrupted because their failure has not yet become something that they fear. Right. And and we always, I have a daughter, and I always mm-hmm. see kids, they always have, I, I can remember as a kid, I would sit down looking at a television show and I wanted to be on TV or I wanted to, uh, I remember I wanted to, I uh, saw some things offshore and I wanted to be, I wanted to work offshore. And eventually in life, I yeah. did work offshore. And so mm-hmm. how I got there, uh, was it tied to my wish as a kid? All I know is nobody stopped me from mm-hmm. that dream or that process. And so when I look mm-hmm. at you, I know that's a word that's been out there a lot because of the Philadelphia 76ers, the process. There's a process when you're talking, Ryan, about chasing your dreams. In your book, when I said it right here, you outline it. What is the process? Let's start there. Is it just having the idea or just having the aspiration? But what is the process of fulfilling or chasing your dream? Well, I think what often happens, you know, people ask me, Ryan, do you really believe that I should shoot for the moon? I say, absolutely. Yes. You just need to know what it costs to get to the moon. You should also know that very few people have ever actually made it to the moon. You should also know that there are a lot of people that help other people get to the moon. They work at NASA. Do you know how hard it is to get accepted at NASA? It is literally 80 times harder to get accepted into NASA than it is Harvard. And so I'm always telling people, you got to ask yourself, is your idea, is your dream, is your goal a top one percenter? Because if it's a top one percenter type idea, a top one percenter type dream, you better have top one percenter type habits. Mm -hmm. You better have top one percenter type disciplines. Mm -hmm. Your schedule should look like a top one percenter. Your money should be spent how top one percenters spend their money. And so oftentimes what I'm encountering is people have top one percenter dreams with 99 percentile type habits. 
and expecting extraordinary results from ordinary habits. And that's just not how it works. And so part of the process is, is actually evaluating, okay, where is my idea? Where is my goal? And being able to assess, okay, how hard is this going to be pulled off? And what is it going to cost me in terms of my time, my finances, even relationships to pull this thing off? And that's where I think people often miss the mark. And actually the reason why they fail is because they fail to actually do the pre-planning to actually make their idea happen. Well, isn't it, Ryan, also tied to people's perception of what they feel you should be or you could be or you should be, and you're not evaluating properly what you want it to be in your life, what the path you want to take? Because you hit on that in the book, but I just want to pull yeah. that out and let people hear that coming out, coming from you yeah. in particular because, you know, you you can be a great athlete. People think you should go into sports, but then you may have the right. desire to be a doctor. And so, right. so you have to shift. In the end, like you said, you have to be happy with you. And when yeah. you're chasing failure and setting yourself up for success, is the success what you want or success you're trying to achieve for somebody else? Let's talk about that a little yeah. bit, Ryan. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I like to say God has a plan for your life. Yes. And so do other people. Yes. <laughs> yes. Other yes. people have a plan for where you should work, the car you should drive, the neighborhood you should live in, who you should date, what your kids should do, where your mm-hmm. kids should work, where your kids should go to school. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's got their plan for your life. And at some point you got to wake up and ask yourself, am I living out God's plan for my life or am I living out somebody else's plan for my life? And so some people I, I talk about in the book, the story of Andre Agassi. Well, in his memoir, I think it came out in 2009, remember, he revealed to us that he didn't really love tennis. Mm-hmm. And you're going, how is one of the greatest tennis players of all time, how does he not like tennis? Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, my dad liked tennis. Right. And, and so here you, and I, and I, and again, I, I just hope that nobody ever wakes up realizing they've been living out somebody else's passion, somebody else's dream. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with stay-at-home moms who are now entrepreneurs and when they first had the ability to stay at home because their husbands made enough money for them to do so, mm-hmm. people would say to them, you're living the dream. Right. You're living the dream. And they would be going, whose dream? Mm-hmm. Whose dream? Right. That might be your dream, but who, who said that it's my dream? And so there can be some assumptions that we all have of, oh, They've got it made. They right. they've they've got it good because of X, Y, and Z. But that doesn't mean that that's something that they actually want it. And so, so those are things that I think we all have to navigate ourselves to go. Right. Okay, is this something that is a true desire of my heart to, to do, or am I doing it because someone else has either pressured me to do it, or that was just part of the expectation? I can't tell you how many business owners are just doing the family business mm-hmm. just because. It's the family business Mm -hmm. and haven't paused long enough to go, what else would you do? And there was so much pressure on them from a very early age that you're going to take this business. In some cases, you're going to take this church. You're going to take this, uh, uh, this medical practice. You're going to take this family law practice. And so that that can bring about tremendous pressure of going, you've already filled in the blank Mm -hmm. with my future. Mm -hmm. And so some people don't feel the permission to start over and have a clean slate. And I like to just tell them who, who's making those rules. And, you know, you're in your thirties and forties. I'm pretty sure you get to make a decision about what you want to do with your life. Well, you know, it's really interesting because I always like to share, be honest about, you know, characterization and 
in, in examples, you know, chasing failure. Right. I'm talking to Ryan Leak. Uh, how falling short sets you up for success. I know that uh, early on in my life, you know, my degree is in mathematics, minor in sociology, mm-hmm. but I was very talented in stand up. Did everything. Deaf Comedy Jam, did yeah. BET Comedy View, everything. You know, so one mm-hmm. that shared stage with everybody from Dave Chappelle to Chris Rock to Martin Lawrence. But yeah. that wasn't my goal. That wasn't my, I just, God just gave me that talent, but everybody saw that as my end game. And so when I went to manage Steve Harvey, people were questioning that decision. I I, Mm. I was very happy, but people were questioning that. I told them, this is what I want to do. I I, I love being behind the camera. God gave me a gift of being in front of the camera, but I actually love being behind the camera. And I I point that out because that's a, that was a, that's a blatant example. Even though I went out and pursued a career as a stand-up comedian, that was my exit plan from IBM, but that wasn't my end plan. And so sometimes right. people only see what they see. And if you have a plan, like you said, in your 30s and 40s, you should be in the position to make your own decisions. Absolutely. And that's really important. And a lot of these examples of whether, you, whether you're financially success or there's a high degree of popularity, that decision mm-hmm. of where you go, your end game, is really tied to you. Correct? Right. Facts. Absolutely. I think people sometimes just get stuck. Yes. In other people's plans because it's more comfortable. Mm-hmm. You won't get as much criticism. You can acquiesce to the status quo because no one will bother you. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. think. Right. Uh, but I think I think the world has been given the greatest inventions, mm-hmm. the greatest innovations from people right. that stepped out and took risks. Mm-hmm. And so I just encourage people. Hey, if, if, if you can take a calculated risk, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, it's chasing failure. It's not chasing foolishness. Right. Okay? Right. <laughs> so, but taking calculated risk. Yeah. I, I think you should. I think you should do a lot of math. And if <laughs> math makes sense, go ahead and go you, for it. You should make a move. You know, the interesting thing about it, like I shared my story about uh, my relationship with uh, how as a stand-up comedy, I, I decided to go ahead and become a writer and a very successful mm-hmm. producer and, and a marketing and branding expert. Um, even though that wasn't my end game. Now in your book, mm-hmm. I, I you shared I, what I felt was a very funny story was your MBA tryout experience. And I say it was funny because that was a, that was a, that was a goal. But the yeah. way you approached it and how you pursued it was what yeah. I is, is I think is really what this book is all about. You know, absolutely. You know, you know, emailing NBA teams randomly, emailing them, right? Random, randomly. And that right there, where people say you shouldn't do that, but you're chasing failure right. because you're achieving success. Yeah. Let's talk about that. The reality of of people saying no to you, telling you that doesn't make any sense. And we hear that a lot about inventions. We hear that a lot about oh. free agents who make NFL teams. We hear people yeah. who leave leave school early to pursue a career professionally mm-hmm. or going to a college. Why are you going to HBCU when you can go to a Harvard? And achieving, right. now we have a vice president of the United States. So these are mm-hmm. the things that we hear all the time. But your pursuit right. of an NBA opportunity, a tryout, is is dynamic and very entertaining from a, from a yeah. writer's standpoint, but from a personal, it was a passion. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, I, I think whenever you're trying to do something, people are always going to have their opinions about what you're trying to do. Right. And you can't let that cloud your, your end goal. And you also have to realize for me, you know, trying to get an NBA workout, 
via email. But <laughs> it's not a Send it's, it again. It really Send it again, a great Ryan. idea. Via like, email. I would agree with my naysayers. Right. Like that's not a great idea. Yes. That's fine. Yes. I'm still going to do it because I don't have anything else. And I'm chasing failure. Mm-hmm. And so what's the worst that can actually happen? A, they don't respond at all. B, they say no. Or C, they say yes. yes. Those are the options. And you won't know which of those options you're going to get if you do nothing. Right. And so I think so many people are afraid of the word no, but it's just a two-letter word. Right. That's it. Mm-hmm. No. I just said it. No. Mm-hmm. No. No. And, and, and so I think so many people can get devastated by the word no, but it just means no. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I know point, you got to keep moving. Right. I, I know that, uh, you know, growing up, you know, uh, I had a friend of mine. He said, Rishon, just no. He would ask every girl in the dance club, in the nightclub to dance. Yeah. He said, I yeah. said he said, man, Rishon, no, it's not going to shoot me. No, it's not going to turn me down. But when he said yes, I'm winning. And so right. he was chasing failure by asking yeah. all these different women who may or may not would date him. But when he sure. got the yes, he won. And so that simple example right there is what we're My talking man. about in life, correct? Right. Yeah. But but but, but the yeah. ultimate thing when you talk about this book is the, you know, when you say, at what moment did you find your why? What advice can you give others looking to find theirs? Because I don't know if I found my why. I'll be honest with you, Ryan, because I'm always moving sure. the moving the needle for the next opportunity. And, but I do know that my why is that I'm living the life that I want to live. I left IBM. Right. You know, I have a degree in mathematics. You know, I have a family mm-hmm. that I'm happy to call my wife and my daughter and my my the staff that works around me support me. Yeah. The building that I bought is the building of my dreams, the car of my dreams. That that may be the why, but again. Yeah. What, what advice can you give to others looking for theirs and how do they find it? Yeah, I, th- I think finding your why is is a journey. I don't know that there's a prime age to, to get it or a prime season, but when you get it, it'll change your life. Mm-hmm. And for me, I found my why. I, I was working at a church. I was on our executive team. And so I was helping uh, manage a lot of different systems at a, at a large church in Dallas. Right. And I was 20, I was 29 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a speaking gig talking about chasing failure um, at a um, at, at a at a corporate engagement. And the person that brought me in was like, hey, I want you to know your story, you know, literally pulled a boy off the ground. Mm-hmm. And literally, uh, he was living in a crack house mm-hmm. on the ground. Mm-hmm. And 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 she said, hey, you know, uh, we disapprove of our daughter's boyfriend. And that was his kid. It was this kid. But he does love basketball. We showed him your documentary. And now he's applying for jobs. He called his mom for the first time. You know, he's going to be playing sports and and a junior college this fall. Like you pulled somebody's life off the ground. And so for me, that was the day I got my why. And and I enjoyed my 20s, but that gave my 30s a whole new purpose. And I said, I want to spend the rest of my life helping pull people's lives off the floor. Mm -hmm. In every room I walk in, I want to add value. And so Mm -hmm. that's the filter in which I live my life. Mm-hmm. That's my why mm-hmm. is this adding value right. to the most people that I possibly can mm-hmm. with the 24 hours I've been given today. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going, I'm on your show right now, processing through right. how can I add value to your viewers and your listeners? Right. I write a book and I think who could pick up this book and is it going to add value to their life? And so when you have a why it creates a filtration system for you to decide what you say yes right. to and what you say no to, to go, does it, does it serve 
Does it serve my why? I'm not going to judge your why because some people's why is money. Right. And that that's kind of what, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to, to make as much money as I possibly can. For some people, I'm trying to make the greatest impact for some people. It's I'm trying to have as much satisfaction as I possibly can. Everybody has a different why and your why is your why. But when you don't have one, I think you, you should be asking yourself the question, why am I doing it? Right. Sometimes it's just pausing at some of us are moving at a pace that's so fast. We haven't even paused long enough to go. Why am I doing this? <laughs> why, why, why am I? Do- They're just moving. Schedule. Right. What's next? Right. What's next? What's right. next? And so what I encourage a person to do is to pause. Is to pause. Sometimes that's an hour. Sometimes that's a day. Sometimes that's a week. Sometimes somebody needs to just go sit on a beach or sit under a cabana and just go, what am I doing in my life? And why? Am I doing that? And is that a why I can live with? Because for some people, they're going, they're doing it for the money. But I know a lot of people who make a lot of money, but they're so busy making the money, they never even get to spend it. Yes. I know people that have $3,500 apartments that they're never in. Mm-hmm. And it's going, I mean, Maybe that's your why. Uh, one person could be a lawyer for the money. Another person could be a lawyer for the justice system. Your why is your why, but your why should be something that gets you out of bed in the morning and one that you can live with. Well, you know, it's important that you say that when I, when I, when I listen to you talk, you know, when you use the mm-hmm. word added value, because I always try to explain to people that, you know, your early years, 18 to 25 is when you define what you want to do with your life. You know, that's when you're mm-hmm. eager. That's when you, I guess, you like you said earlier, there's less fear. Your dreams are bigger. They're reachable mm-hmm. because guess what? They're oh, your yeah. dreams. You know, nobody's told you you could fail when you're 18. Right. You're just walking right. out there. And so, right. and when I got into my 40s, it was when I took responsibility of my life. When I say that, I mean, mm-hmm. admitted that this is my, I guess you can say my why. And when I look back when I was 18, I realized that, all my life, I've been adding value to people. You know, whether it was mm-hmm. whether it was tutoring people who was who needed yep. tutoring, whether it was doing events, whether it was pledging my fraternity in college, which changed my whole perspective on life yep. within the community, the uplift, the whole process, the sitcoms that I wrote, the tours that I did. It was always about making people feel good, and it wasn't really yep. about the money. And even the sitcoms and the shows I took, whether it was Sister Sister, whether it was Jamie Foxx show, whether it was The Parkers, whether it was Robert Townsend show, or, or doing Family Feud, or the Steve Harvey talk show. It was all about uplifting African Americans and showing us in a positive life and not demeaning the principles that we want to be. We just want to fit in. We just want to be appreciated with. And I guess when I bring that up right now, because when you talk about the why, when you talk about defining yourself, that's why it's important to read a book like this, because sometimes you can walk through life not really understanding your value, but certain words like adding value, which I've never used in my life, by the way, Ryan, until hmm. read it in this book and heard you spoke it, speak it on my show, really hmm. locked in exactly who I am. And hmm. was, when sure. I read it, I went, wow, I got to talk to this guy. Because, <laughs> and I was talking to Tristan, you know, my director, one of my EPs on the show, Money Making Conversation. Yeah. And he was saying, he, he was asking me, because I got two copies. He said, Rashawn, should I read? I said, yeah. I said, you should read the book. And he said, why? I said, because, you know, you go through life. And it will reinforce some of your values or some of the things you are doing. And adding value to people's lives is what I do. Mm. Yeah. And and can I say this? If 
you want to make money mm-hmm. in this world, yes. every room you walk in, think to yourself, how can I add value to this yes. room? Mm-hmm. If you do that the rest of your life, you will always make money. Yes. Because you will always be coming up with ideas that add value to the room. And sometimes you have to ask the room, what would add the most value? What is it that people need? What is a problem that everybody continues to have? If you can come up with solutions that add value to solve those problems, you will always be making money in some way, shape, or form. If you walk into every job that you have and go, how can I add value to our customers? How can I add value to my leader? How can I add value to the CEO? How can I add value to my director, my regional manager? You name it. If you're constantly thinking about adding value to people, you will always be making money. You know, I want to close on this statement from you because it's a really good question. I had my questions and you were sent, I was sent questions by, for for the interview. And one of the questions I have to ask is like, how do you network within your failures? When I say that is that Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was the most important question that that I needed to get asked after this interview because failure stops us. Failure shames mm-hmm. us. Failure stops us from actually you know, pursuing our dream because we, I failed. I'm not going to try it again. And so yeah. how does one network within their failures to achieve yeah. their goals? Own it. <laughs> Own it. Own it. Walk in the room, man. I failed. Haven't you? Right. Mm-hmm. You, 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 have you ever walked in a room full of perfect people? I haven't. Right. And so, yeah, all of us can walk in a room, a networking event, and feel like, well, well let me just let me hide. Let me hide my shame. Let me. I, I don't want them to know that I, I failed. I don't want them to know that I've made some mistakes. But the common denominator amongst us all is that we all have failures. We all have mistakes. So be the first one in the room to own it. Right. And just go, yeah, I, I failed. What's the difference? Right. I I just owned it and I owned it with a smile on my face. And typically what happens when you own it first, somebody else goes second. In fact, when you own your own failures, you give permission and space for others to fail. And that's what a lot of people I think miss is failure has this uh, ability to isolate you and put you on this mental island where you feel like you're the only one that's ever failed. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. You're in a very, very long line. There's a lot of people in front of you and there's a lot of people behind you. And so I think even in networking, I think you just, you just got to own it. Are there going to be some people that look down on you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just because they haven't been able to admit their own failures out loud either. Right. And so on some level or another, you, you've got to own it and take lessons from your past failures of going, Hey, I don't want to fail the same way over and over again. I'm taking notes and I'm getting better. But I'm going to own up to the fact that I've made some mistakes and that I feel I am human, but right. I am getting back on the horse and I'm moving on. Well, the, the, the beauty of this conversation is our conversation that we had today, Ryan, is not about money. It's about yeah. you. It's about adding value to yourself, uh, seeing yourself through failures, owning that failure, and then yeah. defining how you can achieve success from that failure. Yeah. And But more importantly is not positioning yourself by saying no to an opportunity that you haven't even pursued. And yeah. an example I want to give, it was always always stuck in my mind because your book is full of examples and I don't want to give away these fantastic examples. So I can take examples from my life. It was this sure. comedy club in the, in the Boston area called Stevie D's. It was packed. It was Thursday night. He would only do comedy on Thursday night. And, uh, and you go in there and it was a picture of every major celebrity in the world on the wall. It was like mm. stunning to me. 
how did this guy get all these? They was autographed to Stevie, 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 Stevie. And one day I sat down and said, I said, I said, I said, Stevie, hey, can I ask you a question? Do you know these people? Nope. I said, so well, how did you get there? He said, I just emailed, I just mailed them. Back then it was mailing. He said, I just mailed them, asked them, could they give me an autographed photo of themselves and sign it to me? And I just put it on the wall. So everybody who comes in the club thinks I know all these people. I said, wow. Yeah. And that's the example. Yeah. Fast forward, that's you emailing the NBA teams asking for a tryout. And then yeah. it happened. And guess what? You learned something about your life. You added value yeah. to your life. And it also righted you on the course of where you should be taking your life. And so Absolutely. those two examples are examples of don't say no to yourself without pursuing the opportunity. Correct? Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on Monday right. Conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. Great book, man. Chasing Failure, How Falling Short Sets You Up for Success by my man, Ryan Leak. Keep winning. And I know you're in Dallas. I'm a Houston boy. I'm going to let you off the hook, okay? <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate you. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Comedian Kim Coles is known for her famous role as a cast member on the hit TV series, Living Single. Now Kim has been sharing her gifts of public speaking, motivation, and training leaders in community groups, companies, and women conferences. And what it really is about is creating a community of like-minded individuals in which my business partner and I coach them through building their business. We did a masterclass on self-care. It really means rest. It means setting boundaries. It means saying no, where saying yes would deplete you further. It means filling your cup so that you can serve others. My ladies are more busy now than they were before the pandemic hit because they realized, oh, I've got a vision. I've got to keep going. And I'm building an empire that will last longer than me. This is about building legacy. If you want to hear this full interview with Kim Cole, visit moneymakerconversations.com. Keep winning. In this season of giving, Kohl's has gifts for all your loved ones. For those who like to keep it cozy, find fleeces, sweaters, loungewear, blankets, and throws. Or support minority-owned or founded brands by giving gifts from Human Nation and Shea Moisture. And in the spirit of giving, Kohl's Cares is donating $8 million to local nonprofits nationwide. Give with all your heart this season with great gifts from Kohl's or Kohl's.com. I'm Tanya Sam, host of the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood. This daily podcast will help give you the keys to the kingdom of financial stability, wealth, and abundance. With celebrity guests like Rick Ross, Amanda Seals, Angela Yee, Roland Martin, J.B. Smooth, and Terrell Owens, tune in to learn how to turn liabilities into assets and make your money move. Subscribe to the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you leave a review. What grows in the forest? Our imagination and our family bonds. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.